Welcome to Boldly Bald Women, surviving and thriving in a hair-obsessed world. If you are grappling with the emotional and social impacts of hair loss, whatever the cause, and frustrated with hot, itchy wigs, this is the place for you. Your host, Pam Fitros, international best-selling author of Boldly Bald Women, guides women on a weekly journey from wanting to hide to becoming courageously bold. Pam herself has alopecia universalis, which has caused permanent loss of all body hair. Listen as she shares inspirational stories and interviews with experts offering insight into recovering self-confidence and reclaiming joy. Now, here's your host, Pam Fitros. Kermit the Frog of Jim Henson's Muppet fame fusses over how hard he thinks it is to be green. Bald didn't faze him at all. But then Kermit is a boy Muppet. Miss Piggy, also naturally bald, coquettishly flicks the long blonde wig, which is as much a part of her signature persona as her strident high-pitched voice. So, why is it such a big deal for women, even Muppet women, to choose to be boldly bald? Hair is a visual language. It gives us up-to-the-minute information about others. The language of hair, like all languages, morphs through time and cultures. But in every time, and in every culture, hair broadcasts the condition, social standing, and, in some societies, even the marital status of women. Hence, a glance at a woman's hair supposedly signals the degree of her attractiveness and availability. My brother married when I was 16. I was in the wedding. That was in the 60s when the bubble style was popular. I wanted the chestnut locks of my hair to be perfect for my brother's wedding. So I carefully teased and styled until the hairdo was just right. Then I worried about keeping it in place for the duration of the wedding, so I sprayed it with hairspray. I let that dry and sprayed it again. And then once more, just to be sure. As nervous, excited bridesmaids and self-conscious groomsmen lined up to start down the church aisle, the fellow to walk with me stared at my hair. I was sure I'd missed a spot and something was out of place. Panic swirled in the angst of my teenage mind. The young man said, Excuse me, I just have to touch your hair. He poked his index finger at the side of my head and looked startled. Nothing had moved. His touch hadn't made a dent in my lacquered dew. It's like a helmet, he whispered, eyes wide in amazement. I sighed, relieved. It would hold up, I affirmed. Who knew I would end up being one of the reasons the bubble dew would become famous as helmet hair? That was back in the days when 16-year-old girls were a lot younger and more naive than 16-year-old girls of today. It took a couple of hours to figure out the guy's response was not a compliment. In the language of hair, the meaning of bald has been simple and clear. Stay away. Unhealthy. Repulsive. Who wants to be a walking advertisement for ugly? I, for one, do not. Up until now, the only acceptable option available for bald women has been hiding their baldness. Some of us have had more than enough of hiding. Women are beginning to pioneer a new option, boldly bald. It's time for the language of hair to evolve to include some new meanings for female baldness. Who better to define those meanings than the women who, every day, face the anxiety and shame baldness imparts? all the while knowing they are just as healthy, intelligent, and sexy without hair as they ever were with hair.
let's start by making one very important clarification right up front. Bald women are not just as. They are more than. Living openly with alopecia requires courage and stamina and humor, all of which are great character builders. I haven't met one woman living openly with baldness who hasn't developed a delightful depth of character that glows and sparkles with her ability to make delicious lemonade of life's lemons. Not many of us would have chosen bald deliberately, especially in view of how difficult it is to be bald in a society infatuated with women's hair. But those of us who have decided to live openly with a baldness our body has foisted upon us know a wealth of delightful freedom. To move beyond the current definitions of beauty in the language of hair and make way for a new perspective on Boldly Bald, let's take a closer look at what those definitions are and how they came into being. Two things became apparent as I researched the history of hair. One, public female baldness has historically never been looked upon as acceptable, let alone positive. Two, the history of women's hair is so tightly woven into the legal, social, political status of women that the history of hair has less to do with hair itself than with a woman's right to her own personhood. The distaste and shame associated with female baldness is rooted deeply in the history of the female gender. And, sorry guys, but the truth is the truth. Male-dominated society planted that distaste and shame, grew it, and then legislated and governed it, while the same men carved out rationales for their own baldness as being a result of superior intelligence and sexual virility. Valerie Connolly, publisher of Boldly Bald Woman, shared a story about her grandmother with me. I share it with you now as an excellent example of male domination over women and their hair. Valerie's grandmother, Mary Cranston Green, was born in 1865, the year of Lincoln's assassination. She was the first woman to be enrolled into a small religious college in southern Illinois during the mid-1880s. She was to graduate with honors, a very, very big deal for a woman of that day and age. Just before graduation day, she cut her waist-length hair into a just-below-the-ears bob. The president of the college was appalled. He told her in no uncertain terms he didn't think he could graduate her since she had shown such poor judgment in cutting her hair. She drew herself up to her full height, squared her shoulders, and told the president politely, but with unshakable conviction, that the length of her hair had nothing to do with the quality and value of her mind. This plucky young woman not only graduated, but graduated with every honor she was due, except one. She should have gotten an additional honor for standing up to that educated, ignorant jerk. Okay, back to ancient history. There was, however, a shining moment for baldness about 5,400 years ago, beginning 3400 BC in Egypt. Camelot for the boldly bald, if you will. Egyptians, men and women and children alike, shaved their hair off, both to avoid infestation of rampant head lice and for relief from an extremely hot climate. The deliberate baldness of personal comfort, however, was not meant for public display. Hair was still important to convey visual messages of wealth, status, and political significance, not to mention protection from the harsh Egyptian sun. The wealthy had collections of expensive human hair wigs culled from the hair of slaves. These were elaborately arranged and adorned with gem-encrusted gold diadems, exquisitely carved hairpins of ivory, precious metals, and beads. Think Elizabeth Taylor and Cleopatra. The longest, most complicated styles were reserved for the highest-class women, 
Those with less status and money used real hair extensions or combinations of plant fiber and hair. The bottom of the social heap wore wigs too, but they were made completely from vegetable fibers. Wigs were a status symbol to be sure, but they weren't meant to hide baldness in the same way the curtain in the chamber of the Wizard of Oz was meant to hide the lowly, symbolically powerless man behind the scenes. Wigs were items of fashion and fun, and everybody knew everybody else was bald underneath them. At that time in history, baldness held no dark connotations of ill health or shameful misdeeds. Unlike most other ancient societies, women and men were equal under the law and viewed each other as equals. Men weren't in charge of an Egyptian woman's personal power and perceived value. Women of Egypt could own, manage, and sell property. They could own and free slaves at will, make and sign contracts, make adoptions, and they were entitled to sue at law. Egyptian women didn't need a husband for economic security, and once married, they retained their rights. They could come and go as they pleased and divorce if they so chose. The difference in people's legal rights came from their places in the pecking order of social class rather than from their gender. But within each class there was equality between men and women. The life of lower class Egyptians was harsh, and slaves were still slaves regardless of gender equality within their low social standing. Still, if I had to pick an era and place to be a bald woman other than in the here and now, it would have been Egypt in 3400 BC. Before we go any further, I must tell you I am married to a Greek man. He's adorable. He's wonderful. He's amazing. Short, but really amazing. He's my best friend, the love of my life. He makes me laugh every day and has promised me if I ever even think about writing another book, he'll cheerfully divorce me. He doesn't know it yet, but he doesn't mean that. Well, you get the picture. I have no animosity towards Greeks per se, except for two, Plato and Aristotle. I have a bone to pick with those boys. Aristotle said, It is the best for all tame animals to be ruled by human beings, for this is how they are kept alive. In the same way, the relationship between the male and the female is by nature such that the male is higher, the female lower, that the male rules and the female is ruled. People respected what Aristotle said. His impact on thoughts and beliefs was widespread and long-lasting. Plato, Aristotle's mentor, taught Aristotle that females were biologically inferior to males because they did not produce semen. Plato contended the soul of a human being was contained in the semen, and women only supplied the nourishment or medium in which the form grew. The man was the seed, the woman was merely the field. Aristotle concluded that a woman's inability to produce semen was her deficiency and made her subhuman. Sisters and brothers, that statement makes my feminist blood boil. This put Greek women and all women from that time forward in the position of being subjected to men in everything and legally powerless to alter their position. In some places, women weren't even allowed to cut their own hair without a man's permission. Marriages were arranged along status lines to produce heirs for property inheritance. A woman's feelings weren't considered. She was looked upon as breeding stock. Her success in obtaining the financial stability of a husband was dependent on being perceived as valuable breeding stock, as defined by men. If time travel were a reality, and I were transported back to ancient Greece, I wouldn't have lasted very long. Once in the early part of our relationship, my husband had some of his Greek buddies over to celebrate his name day. Greeks celebrate the calendar day of the saints they were named for rather than their birthdays. 
When one of the fellows finished his beer, Mike asked if he'd like another. His friend, Gus, who came to the United States many years before, nodded. Mike snapped his fingers, gesturing for me to bring another beer. Gus cringed and gasped. What? Mike asked in a bewildered tone. Never. Never snap your fingers at an American woman, Gus whispered through teeth closed tightly in a frozen smile. Mike was new to American culture, just off the plane, so to speak, and he was genuinely puzzled. He asked, why not? Just wait, you'll see. I strode into the kitchen of his apartment and took a few really deep breaths before sweetly calling out, Mike, may I see you in the kitchen for a moment, please? His friends jabbed each other, smiling smugly. Mike came into the kitchen and asked me what was wrong. I grabbed him by his shirt front, backed him up against the refrigerator door, handed him the beer, and said very quietly through clenched teeth, If you ever snap your fingers at me again, you'll find yourself a lot shorter than you are now. Got it? Having received a timely lesson in cultural diversity and too surprised to react, Mike took the beer out to his still nodding friends, a changed man. From the 4th century to the 20th century, women were told their hair was their crowning glory, the essence of their beauty. But that essence was dangerously seductive, and therefore had to be hidden. The covering of a woman's hair became mandatory under the guise of religious law. Men considered their own temptation to be women's fault. Male self-control was not deemed to be male responsibility. Denied freedom, education, and legal recourse, a woman could only accept what she was told by the men who had complete control over her life. The log jam against a woman's right to her own being began to break up when Jesuit priests in North America saw how well matriarchal Indian societies worked. This new awareness of female intelligence and competency eventually changed a few male attitudes about the capabilities of women. Perhaps gender was not the issue after all. Perhaps the problem was lack of education and opportunity. It was a revolutionary and very unpopular theory. At the same time, women in Europe, fed up with male control, were banding together to alter their personal and legal status. When Lincoln proclaimed the American slaves to be free, suddenly a whole new stratum of repressed women seeking equality entered the fray. We'll talk more about this later. If you think equating female baldness with shame is a thing of an ugly, archaic past, think again. Remember Valerie, whose grandmother cut her hair just before graduation? That same Valerie had an educational business assignment in Iran in the early 1970s. She said she could just as easily have been on the French Riviera, given the way women looked and dressed and cut their hair. Women were educators, judges, doctors, whatever they could dream and could work to become. Women's rights were effectively turned to dust after Ayatollah Khomeini took power in 1979 and dictated Sharia law to become the governing law of Iran. Women had to cover their bodies from head to toe, declaring them once again to be the temptresses and thereby declaring men, once again, not responsible for their own actions. If they wouldn't comply, Article 102 of Iran's constitution condemned them to 74 strokes of the lash. Women once again could do nothing without permission from their husbands, including cutting their hair. But their husbands could divorce them without notice at any time. So if a woman became bald, she was no longer valuable as breeding stock. I divorce you, baldy, and I, your now ex-husband, keep the kids. Don't even get me started on what has happened to women of Iran since the institution of Sharia law. This destruction goes way beyond the scope of a woman's right to cut her hair. 
The World Health Organization has established that Iran is the third top-ranking country of death by suicide. In a western province of Iran, the deputy governor on women's affairs reported 75% of suicides in the province were women, and 90% of those were between the ages of 17 and 35 years. The younger Iranian women who cherished their freedom have become completely devastated. Do you think the United States, land of the free and home of the brave, is exempt from punishing women by shaving off their hair? Think again. On September 16, 2009, in Hillsborough County, Florida, a man was arrested for allegedly beating his young daughter with a belt and shaving her head as punishment for his belief that she had shoplifted jewelry from a Walmart and had taken a Game Boy from his room to play with it without his permission. School authorities reported child abuse when the girl came to school with her head shaved. The father admitted to shaving the girl's head but denied the alleged beating. The man was accused of third-degree felony child abuse. Hillsborough's county office spokesman declared the charge was based primarily on the alleged beating and not on the shaving of the girl's head. The father was released on his own recognizance the following day. The questions asked by the blogger reprinting the story were, What do you think? Is forcibly shaving a child's head just another type of punishment? Or is it child abuse in the form of humiliation? So, what do you think? The effects of negative attitudes toward female baldness go beyond the loss of hair to the very core of feminine identity. Increasing the connection between luxurious hair and feminine value has become the foundation of a global industry that grossed approximately $42.5 billion in 2010 and continues to increase revenue by leaps and bounds. The pressure is on to respect the hair. Is it any wonder the majority of bald women hide? Companies spend billions of dollars advertising their products. Why? It works. A world market for hair care products of $42.5 billion is a pretty big pie. Every hair care company out there wants a slice. How do they get that slice? By convincing us we need their products in order to feel healthy, beautiful, sexy, worthy, secure, classy, and powerful. Name your desire. All this they insinuate in addition to clean hair. In 1915, when the bob haircut came into style, new products popped up like mushrooms in a compost heap. After centuries of elaborately braided, woven, and curled hair, straight hair was the in style. So many women were getting their hair cut that men's barber shops were inundated. The result? Women's beauty shops came into being. At the same time, a whole new market developed for hair care for both genders of the African-American community. They could signal their rising status through the visual language of hair. Straight hair became popularly known as good hair, and getting straight hair became the thing to do. The opportunistic advertisers were right there to reassure our black sisters and brothers they would surely feel healthy, beautiful, sexy, worthy, secure, classy, and powerful if they only used XYZ hair care product. What about women with no hair, whether from alopecia or poor nutrition? No worries, mate. The products to cover a woman's bald head provided one more opportunity for companies to make money by appealing to the same emotions. Wigs of all types, materials, colors, and fashions became a huge business. The advertising message was, and is, let us help you keep your secret so you too, you unfortunate woman, can look beautiful, 
healthy, sexy, worthy, secure, classy, powerful, and feel safe from humiliation and rejection. Of course, the basic assumption was that bald women are not beautiful, healthy, sexy, worthy, secure, classy, powerful, and don't feel safe from humiliation and rejection. Now there's an assumption that needs revamping. These days, wigs and weaves and extensions are worn by celebrities who give the hair pieces even more appeal. The size of the market pie increases. I imagine you're wondering why I think this isn't a win-win situation. Somebody sells something another person wants and everybody's happy. Oh, my dear, if only that were true. It's not the products themselves that I object to. It's the insidious undermining of a woman's personal value, just as she is. A woman is good if she is beautiful if she is sexy if on and on and on most of us not only buy the products we buy into the hype as well all that hype is snake oil words and images carefully couched to avoid lawsuits for false advertising promise us emotional wholeness inner peace acceptance and the good life if only we buy use do wear while so many in the world live in the kind of poverty where a metal pot to cook in makes you wealthy, we live in a fantasy world where perfection of physical appearance is not simply a pastime. It is deemed a necessity. If it's flawed, cover it up. If it's broad, run it off or suck it out. If it's too long or too short or too big or too small, pay to have it cut and reshaped and resized. Aging is not about increasing knowledge wisdom, character, understanding, and acceptance of self and others, it's about fighting the mortal enemies of lines and creases 24 hours a day. It is about hiding and constant vigilance. Difference is not to be explored and celebrated. It is to be camouflaged and minimized. Put this on. There, now only your hairdresser will know for sure. Like the promise of cool water in a desert mirage, the promise of inner peace and contentment amid the constant covering up, primping, and making over is an illusion. The truth is we become more entrenched in the belief we are not good enough as we are. It is about believing our value comes not from our character and our actions, but rather from our ability to hide flaws. I tried to swallow the snake oil promises when my hair fell out. I ended up choking. I bought the wig and wanted to believe it would fix the problem of my bald head. I began wearing makeup to fill in for missing eyebrows and minimize the alien look of missing eyelashes. I looked in the mirror and I saw a stranger, not myself, not me without the wig and not me with the wig. One of the people who contributed to Boldly Bald Women wrote, For 12 years I searched for a miracle product that would cure hair loss. I spent a lot of money on products that claimed to cure hair loss and never did. I tried Better Nutrition, Rogaine, Minoxidil, MSM, did headstands, aromatherapy, herbal teas, acupuncture, reflexology. I would love to have all that money back for all those pills and potions and lotions. I could have taken a vacation to New Zealand with it. I would have been better off. I think she was right. What good does it do to hide on the outside? when the inside is not comfortable, when the inside is still hypervigilant. For me, and for many others, there has to be a better way. But what is it, and how do we find it? Join me again next time 
when we talk about the answer to that question. Thank you for listening to Boldly Bald Women, surviving and thriving in a hair-obsessed world. If you've enjoyed this program, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. To find out more about Boldly Bald Women and receive a free gift from Pam, please visit www.boldlybaldwomen.com.